Welcome to The Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Histova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited to have Sean Richards back on the show. Sean is an independent economist who specializes in inflation measurement and monetary economics. This follows a career in the city of London where he specialized in derivatives, mainly options, on interest rates and bonds. Sean has also worked in Tokyo. He is a Bank of England watcher, which covers the issues of monetary policy and money printing or quantitative easing. Sean also traded as a local on the London International Financial Futures Exchange, where he mostly traded futures and options on future and present UK interest rates. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about the UK bond market. The Bank of England, can they stop the temporary quantitative easing, which they've started when the financial markets are so tight? Will interest rates go up to 6%? We talk about the housing market. And are we likely to see a policy change in 2023 to lower interest rates and to more QE? I hope you enjoyed this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Sean, welcome back to the show. Who thought that you'd be back so soon? We were giggling about that last time. Now, the UK has had quite an eventful week or two, more than two weeks now, since the UK Chancellor announced his £45 billion tax-cutting mini-budget. It's obviously reverberated through the financial markets, sending the pound to a record low against the dollar and prompting the Bank of England to intervene in the gilts or the bond market. The Bank of England has yet again started printing money to avoid mass insolvencies of pension funds in the UK. Can you tell us what's going on? And I've also heard people talk about the fact that the UK Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, is he's being accused of Reaganomics. Can you talk us through what's going on and, and what does that mean? Okay. There was a time when Reaganomics was considered praise, actually. Uh, the situation that shifted a little bit, which I think is more perception than reality. But back to your question, virtually every economy in the world this year has been under pressure because the US dollar has been very strong. That's the background. It's a combination of the US raising interest rates and also at times of uncertainty, people go to the dollar. Those listening to this may read look up at various times. There's always talk that the dollar's going to be replaced. And the truth is, as it turns out, it's got even stronger. So that's where we stand. So that's the background to where we find ourselves. The UK found itself vulnerable. To some extent, as a small open economy, we're always vulnerable. But we had a two-step move. Firstly, Thursday, when was that? Just under two weeks ago now. The Bank of England didn't match the US Federal Reserve in raising interest rates. I know it's only a small thing, a half rather than three quarters. That mattered. It also, rather crucially, said it was going to continue with plans to actually sell bonds. So that was a thing. Because the very next day, the government then announced its plans. Now, there's sort of two sections to this in my mind. Because the first is everyone knew about the energy saving plan, so roughly what that was. So that wasn't a surprise. I think the scrapping of the 45p tax rate and the bankers' bonuses thing caught people out a little bit. I know they trailed the bankers' bonuses thing. People weren't sure. And so things then got very excited, you might say. I have to say, 
I put my hand up. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Took me back to my times in the markets when I was on the life floor. But for people looking at it, they'll think, well, the pound's collapsing. Guilt yields are going up. It's a bad thing. Yes. Then once that started, and this is not an easy thing to get over, it always felt like it was going to the lows. I can't express this in terms of economics particularly. People have all sorts of hot takes at the time. But now as we've moved somewhere else, they're all completely wrong. I'm afraid it's a matter of human psychology. And then also that you had a factor on Sunday night, Monday morning. I think New Zealand was on holiday. The markets were very thin. And so things looked dreadful. Then we came to the next stage, which caught people out in many respects and also caught out the pension funds, which they'd done a thing called LDI, Liability Driven Insurance, which in simple terms assumed that interest rates wouldn't go up. Well, they did. They then found themselves in a mess, which is analogous, if people ever looked at this, to selling options. I know the ordinary person probably would never have done it, but it used to be my job back in the day. And what you find is that everything runs away from you in terms of the price of you getting the money in for the options. And so they found themselves in a complete mess. Sean, can you explain what options are for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this and how they work? It's a bit like betting in a way, if I try and put it like that. So in essence, I would like the bookmaker. So you go, I don't know, £10 on a horse or whatever it is you're going to bet on. Well, if you think of the other side, the bookmaker's taking the £10, but they're assuming the risk that the horse might win. If it does, they've got to give you 100 to give a simple example. And this is where the pension funds found themselves. How did we get here? Well, because we've had no interest rates, virtually zero for so long, and then, of course, we went even lower down to 0.1, they need money in, but they didn't have any because there's no interest rates. This is something we've discussed before, the problems created in a system whereby they need a cash flow, the system set up for it, but there isn't any or there isn't enough. And it's partly then human nature to assume certain things can't happen. Well, they did. So the price of them getting in their £10, to stay with my simple example, was once bond yield started heading up around about 4%, then they had to start paying back. The only way they could pay back was to sell more bonds, which raised the yield again. They were in a sort of death spiral, if you like. And this was the reason for why the Bank of England intervened. The minute we go out of that scenario, here's the thing and here's the other side of it, and we're back to psychology again, it's over and you're out. It's like it never happened. But in those few days, it was quite a mess because it was a downward spiral. Their only way out was to sell, which made it worse. This sort of thing's very awkward. You find yourself in a position where you can't actually get back what you've done. So that's the other side. Because ordinarily, what's the thing that people might have seen this? Like, say, in the Reddit campaigns, if people have followed that, when they were buying shares, the meme stocks, and ramping them earlier this year, they were the plus side of this. I thought of this a bit, having been on the other side of what would I do? Because they're actually, ironically, if, say, Sean, the options market maker, had been standing there, I'd have been in the same thing because they'd just be keep buying options off you. You'd never have any chance to get the position back, so you'd need to plan for that. Well, that was where the pension funds were. How did this stop? In many ways, the Bank of England 
announcing its intervention stopped it because then that took out a lot of the fear element. So they stopped selling, basically? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, the Bank of England did buy some so far. It's bought uh, just under 3.7 billion. I know that sounds a lot, but in the scheme of numbers we're discussing here, it isn't. And on Tuesday, for example, they didn't buy any because the situation's now a lot calmer. It's like the thing never happened. It's one of those really awkward things. I don't know if you've been somewhere, I don't know, let's, let's put it like the weather. It's like you're somewhere really hot, I don't know, the Italian lakes, and you have a summer shower. Three hours later, there's no evidence it was ever there, but it did rain. That's what these things are like. It's back to my thing of psychology and fear and how people behave. There's people behaving in a situation. How do they behave? And that was the thing. So you'd think of pension funds being sophisticated and things like that. And in fact... They're very edgy. Yeah. In the end, it comes down to human behaviour. And that was why it creates a lot of difficulty. The ones that are these things of defined benefit pension schemes have a particular problem because actually another one at the minute, of course, is offering people inflation-linked benefits when inflation's high. And the whole hedging issue was a real problem for them. There have been problems hedging inflation full stop before we got the bit right now. So everything was a mess from their point of view. And now, as I said, it's like it never happened in many respects. I was reading just very briefly the, the, the FT before we jumped on the call. And obviously there's so much volatility, uncertainty and nervousness in the market. And investors are saying is that, you know, when we go through these volatile periods like we did on Monday, that there's likely to be a financial accident. And, and we are almost waiting for something to break, aren't we? We are, but it's back to partly the answer I gave before and then something I've said, but I've been here previously as well. This is the consequence of having interest rates so low for so long. There are always some risks, but various things that run simply couldn't. And so they adjusted for it. Those that follow the financial news and that, there was a scare story about the bank Credit Suisse over the weekend. Now, why does this come about? Well, partly actually it looks like someone behaved badly and it wasn't what they said. Firstly, Credit Suisse denied it. That's always a bad move because it makes everyone think, what are you denying? Are you telling the truth? But the issue that it's made various mistakes, Arcus, Greensill Capital Management, I think even tuna bonds in Madagascar, would you believe it? Basically everywhere it's gone, it's tripped over. But it does have capital. But why is it tripped over? Well, because the ordinary banking income wasn't there because there weren't any interest rates. In fact, in Switzerland, they were negative. It was even worse. So they do have a lines of business, but it's riskier. We know this because the central banks always deny it. There's always some claim. In, when they do a financial report, it doesn't matter which central bank, it'll claim, oh, no, no, there's no risk taking from this. And that's just simply not true. So back to your question, are things more likely for something to let go? Yeah, because of the world that we're in. And I feel like we're all waiting with bated breath, really. And that's why everyone was so jumpy. And of course, the Bank of England had to jump in to try and avert disaster. But it's a tricky time. So sterling is down approximately 27% since Brexit against the dollar. It might have moved a little bit. And inflation continues to rise. You know, we're talking about the fact that bond markets are volatile and, and slightly unhinged, really, from everything else. And, and investors are nervous, to say the least. I guess my question here is, 
Can the Bank of England afford for it to get any worse? Can they actually stop quantitative easing, especially when markets are so tight and everyone is so nervous? I think it's a generic, can the central banks stop? Probably not. I've written a few times that they can't. Why not? If we, let's try and pin this down. The first thing is that governments have got hooked on cheap credit. It's like an addiction, really. And then once everything adjusts to them paying very low amounts, if we say look at the UK, our bond yields got down as low as half a percent. Now, let me give myself some credit here on the other side. I was suggesting then we should offer some century bonds, 100-year bonds. It might have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to borrow at that sort of price. Why not do it? But back to the other side of the situation, governments are used to paying then half a percent. So that was one of the ways why all the pandemic COVID spending could be afforded in that sense, because any extra borrowing we did was so cheap. Staying with the UK, most of the borrowing we did around that was at less than 1%. Other places were in fact more exposed. For example, if we look at the euro area, when they had negative interest rates, even Italy at the short M was borrowing at negative yields. For people that don't understand, it was paid to borrow. Now, if you look at the situation of Italy, that's insane. But that's where we were. So if we take those sort of things forward, and now we look at a world where, say for instance, UK guilt yields, roughly 4%, even Germany's over 2%, governments are actually having to pay now. They've got all that extra borrowing. So the situation is now different in terms of what they can spend at the margin. They've got to pay more debt interest. So that's where one side of where it gets really difficult. The other side is, who are they going to sell all these bonds to? In the UK, the situation is we have approximately... 840 billion we did. I think the euro area is 5 trillion euros. The United States balance sheet is 9 trillion. I looked up Japan the other day. It's 445 trillion yen, I think, on their balance sheet. They're not so worried about that. <laughs> they just keep ploughing on. Japan is an exceptional case in many ways. One of them is with this, they've just absolutely ploughed on. They've bought everything. They've bought equities. They've bought commercial property. And of course, a fortnight ago, they're intervening against the yen, which we may not be very far away from that again, because whilst currencies recovered, for example, the pound recovered to above 114 yesterday, we've actually soared against the yen, which means in this phase, they haven't sort of caught up. They've got out of phase with the others, which makes me think next time around, if we get another dollar push, they could be back. So that's the background to the situation in which we find ourselves. And sure, why is Japan not concerned and they keep buying everything? We do look to Japan in terms of how money printing, buying of bonds or equities, how that's affecting the economy. They don't seem to be concerned by it, as you say. Why not? And is that really where we're heading? Well, features of their life are different to ours. I worked out there. It's a frightening number of years ago now, disappearing in the past, but it is a very different life. So their structure's different. For example, of course, until recently, we haven't had enormous amounts of inflation, except in the housing market, but they've essentially had none. So you go to a machine and you get a drink, a cola, Coca-Cola, Pepsi or something, 
And those things have remained at 100 yen, and they just won't have it. And I know it sounds insane because you're thinking various things like energy cost prices have to go up. And for some things they do, but they've done it the other way by adjusting quality. But in many respects, they've stayed there, but they've got stuck in other areas. Wages have gone nowhere. Real wages have gone down. It's basically virtually always full employment. So it's quite a different society in the way that they operate it. I still do wonder at times how they get away with their not being in, well, at the minute they have 3% inflation, but nothing like what we have. But that is the way that they work. And also, there's a flip side to all the government debt, because whatever number you look at, you get extraordinary numbers for Japan. But remember, the Japanese themselves save. So the Japanese economy, lots of it, often you can consider it as almost like an internal one. Government borrows, Japanese give it to it. Bank of Japan buys it as well. So there are differences. There's a song. I use it a lot. Lyrics, turning Japanese. I think we're turning Japanese. I really think so. By the vapors to give them their credit. And where does that work? Have we done some of that? Well, the Bank of England coming in, as it did this week, is a yes. One of the differences in UK life is we do have inflation when it comes through at times, like we're seeing now. So that's not the same. So it's not everything. But it is very, very different. But they have their own problems. They call it the lost decade. That's now decades plural now. Because of one of the things that I was just discussing was real wages. They have a struggle with that. The fall of the yen recently, when they do international comparisons, has made that worse. So maybe for the first time, the Japanese will be troubled about that. That's life there. And difficult to break it. I think difficult to change direction, I guess. I want to talk briefly about the housing market and interest rates. I was just checking, you know, interest rates, I think, are now at 5.97%, so very close to 6% for a two-year mortgage. I think we were expecting, you know, for them to be 6%, the interest rates to be, well, we expect the interest rates to be 6% before the end of the year. If the government does not do a U-turn on the growth plan, it doesn't look like they will. What does this mean for the market, you know, for homeowners and for renters? I think there are quite a few people concerned about how this is going to make the cost of living crisis even worse. Well, there's various elements to that. Firstly, do I believe interest rates going to 6%? No. Now, I know that futures markets have been predicting that, but that's back in the volatile environment that we've been. Personally, I think we start heading there, things will really break. So, Mm. no. We can't afford to do that. Yeah, yeah. Now, I thought that along the way at maybe lower levels when we had no interest rates at all, but we're, somehow we're getting along. Things aren't very good, are they? So there's a thing. There was a turn yesterday, which is that the Reserve Bank of Australia only raised by a quarter of a percent. Now, why does that matter? That's in a way the first sign, I think, of a central bank blinking. Why am I saying this? I've believed all along in the end, it's called a pivot. That's the word people are using. But what it means is they'll bottle it, panic, turn around, U-turn, however you want to express that. Why do I think that? Well, because you see, they've put in the way that large numbers I was describing earlier, they've put so much effort into claiming that they saved the economy through COVID that the minute we start turning down, I think they think, oh, well, that might go wrong. We better stop it. So... I'm not a believer in the interest rate soaring. I mean, now, at which point they'll do that, of course, I don't know. 
because we're back to a type of human emotion again. But back to the Australia point with them, it's only a small thing, but I think it's very significant of them doing a quarter rather than a half, is that's the first sign. So in the panic for the UK, people were thinking the Bank of England would do 2% in November. I always thought that was silly. I mean, they thought half was a big deal. But anyway, that came back to now like one and a quarter. I think that will drift back. Now, obviously, I don't know the future exactly, but it could easily end up as three quarters by the time we reach November because what we're seeing, a month's a very long time away. Then I think things will start to look different. Obviously, things like Ukraine and that might change. And then as the economies get hit, I think the central bank view will change. And here's a real irony of the situation, that the government with its energy package was trying to deal with that. The energy situation is a complete mess. And this is one of the shames of this phase, that people run around and say, oh, the pound this, interest rates that. And of course, for mortgages, don't misunderstand me, that's a really big deal. But the central problem we have is the mess we've made of energy policy. And that's why we are where we are. Now, I didn't answer your question about house prices. I think that they have to fall if we stay in anything like this. But how that's going to play out is really difficult. Near to me is Nine Elms. That's just got almost like, I don't know, played its joker if it was a game of cards or something because of what happened in Hong Kong. And the Chinese will move in from there when it looked like no one would buy it. But in other areas, like you were describing with higher mortgage rates, must be difficult for people buy to letting and people ordinarily buying. There must be places looking at things they just simply can't afford it. So in the end, you think that would apply. But I follow the house price measures very closely. And so far, they're not really showing that. Best we've seen so far or worst, depending on your perspective, was that the nationwide was unchanged last time around. Other countries are seeing falls so far. And as far as we're recording it, no one seems to have found them. Yeah, really interesting. I think, again, people, investors, you know, the markets are waiting for something to change. I think most people understand that we simply cannot sustain very high interest rates for long and investors are expecting the QE to kick in and to keep going, really. I wonder whether that's playing into it. But also, it's impossible to have high interest rates and quantitative easing. It simply can't work hand in hand, can it? Well, I don't think they ever thought through the funding side of the argument for people that don't follow it. The Bank of England charges itself its own bank rate. So by raising interest rates, it's made it more expensive for itself. Now, this is a very arcane issue as to how this is accounted for. and. It's something that I have followed. And we, we had a bond mature. I forget if it's the summer of 2019 or 2018. Excuse me, but so much has gone on. And I contacted our Office of National Statistics to tell them I thought their numbers were out by $2 billion. And they never really answered it, actually. I think they now do it more my way, which was an implied compliment, maybe a suggestion that I was right, which I was pretty sure of. In the exchange of money flowing between the Treasury and the Bank of England and so on, it gets complex because, in a way, some of it's a zero-sum game. Treasury issues it, Bank of England takes it, later it goes back. But there are elements here. But back to my point, they've raised their own costs. 
which is a sort of irony. And so now it's more expensive. So what do they do? Because it's relating to the bond yields. They're not getting as much income. Now it needs to be accounted for because over this period, staying with UK numbers, the UK Treasury has benefited by about 120 billion. So the Bank of England's sort of given it the money back. But now, hang on, if it's losing, have they got to pay it? And so there'll be a lot of debate going on about this as to what they do. And it's a real problem for them because in a sense, the Bank of England could just make the money. It's its job after all. They've got very itchy collars right now as to what to do. They'd rather get back to it. And I don't think they thought this through. I'm absolutely sure that their plans for selling bonds were really stupid because I kept telling them. They kept insisting they could do it. And look what we saw happen. The market collapsed for a bit. That's one of the reasons, to go back to the answer I was given before, why Japan hasn't changed at all. They just thought, well, we're not having it. But yeah, so it's a thing that wasn't quite thought through. They're not sure what to do next. So one of the things may simply to go back to doing it again. I don't think it's a good idea, but I suspect they probably will. It doesn't sound like we have a choice in it. It sounds like we're just going to continue as we are because it's simply impossible not to unless we allow something to break. And I think we don't want the pension funds going insolvent and breaking the financial system and people's livelihoods. That's basically what we're talking about. Well, the bottom line of all of this is for these things to work, we need economic growth. Again, sort of an irony because that was part of the trust plan, which may or may not work. But we've rumbled on for a long time with not much economic growth. We sort of dug our way out of COVID. But again, we've returned to a situation, which is where we were before, where economies weren't growing very much. And that always makes it awkward because then, you know, if you say, let's stick with the plan and, and let's say it works and the UK got 2.5% growth a year, then there's money you can shuffle around to fix these sort of things. If you don't, it gets awkward. It strips everything. Yeah, some extent the situation in Japan. I think the more classic case is Italy. For those that don't follow it, basically since it's joined the euro, Italy hasn't grown at all. Because the population grew, they've had migration through the Mediterranean and other bits. That means that per person, or in economic terms, it's called per capita, it shrunk. And so when you hear stories of Italy being in trouble, that's the basic cause. It has problems with its public finances. It's not particularly that it's overspent. The problem is that the economy hasn't grown. And that's an extreme case at the minute of where many others have. The UK economy does grow at times, but we've struggled to do it consistently. And then now, after the COVID problem, what do we find? Well, because of the energy crisis we've plunged into, we're back into another situation where economy could even shrink. Yeah, which is why, you know, coming back to this point, we've talked about it before, investment, and you mentioned it, Sean, is, is so important in this economy. And at the moment, we're not seeing as much as is needed. But I think this is what Kwarteng has obviously tried to do by incentivizing investors to put more money in towards startups and innovation with the SEIS scheme and EIS scheme and increasing the amount of money, right, that you can put in to get those tax incentives. So stuff like that is really, really important. 
but we're just in a very difficult stage at the moment. And I guess the question is, can we grow? How quickly can we grow over what period? And in that time, will anything break that will mean we will be in an even bigger hole, as it were, and we'll have to dig ourselves out of it? It would take longer. It would be more difficult, more expensive. We just don't know. Sean, where do we go from here? What, if you were to predict what's going to happen in Q4, I know you're not a sort of predictor or you know magician or anything like that, but what's your kind of take on what's going to happen in this quarter? And then looking ahead at 2023? Well, there's downward pressure from the fact that in spite of the energy price package, energy bills have just gone up. There is the rebate thing. They've knocked 67 quid off my bill this month, so that is kind of working, the one that I'm with. But even so, people would be squeezed by that. So you think there'd be less expenditure elsewhere. So there's a risk of the economy shrinking Q4. The inflation picture is actually one of the things that I do do, but it's quite difficult at the minute because they've taken an enormous amount of inflation out of the system because energy prices would otherwise have risen more. That's come back, but still pressure there and inflation unfortunately tends to spread everyone's ignored that but it gets into other categories so that will remain an issue so it won't be much fun for q4 any sort of growth effort from what they've done well that won't be there for then i don't think so i'm afraid it's not a very pleasant end to the year and start to next year some of these things are completely outside our control I was about to say, looking out my window, we've got lots of wind today, which is good. But actually, the trees have just gone still. It's not very hopeful, is it? And strangely enough, something as silly as a windy winter is something we desperately need because a lot of our problems are around energy and we put ourselves in hot to sources that are unreliable. Solar's not going to be much use of a winter. So we need to, ah, good, the trees are now blowing again. But that in a way, I know it sounds silly, but a lot of what's going to happen is going to depend on that. Because otherwise, we're going to run down the road of expensive energy prices. People will then be worrying about how much the government's going to have to borrow to keep our bills at a typical two and a half grand a year and so on. So that's a thing. There is a piece of good news coming into this that I don't think has been reported much, is that wholesale markets or energy prices have been falling so the cost of the energy package looks like it will be lower than what we've seen so far. So that's more hopeful and may calm things down a bit. But the danger is, and for like energy intensive things, glass, steel, that sort of thing, maybe they can't operate at all. It's completely unviable. So for some, this could be very difficult. We could say businesses closing down. And this has kicked into areas that, I personally never looked at because you don't think of it, but things like ammonia production that's important for fertiliser is very energy intensive and it depends on some of the industries that are closing down. It was a byproduct. We saw this with carbon dioxide. There was one of the ironies of life, isn't it? It's something we're supposed to be getting rid of in terms of policy and actually we had firms making it and we need it. So it's more complicated. And those sort of things, back to your thing, is something maybe breaking could happen. So I'm afraid it's not an entirely cheerful look. The hopeful thing, as I said, is that wholesale energy prices have been falling. So the costs of the package, which other countries are repeating, to move on to the UK situation, I always thought some of that was silly. 
other countries in Europe were going to have to copy us. In the meantime, Germany and the Netherlands have. And so that's a sort of almost like a group situation. But it's the energy thing that's the player here. That's why we had the thing in the gilt market. That's why people were worried about the pound. That's why the Euros had a bad week this week and so on. Yeah, as you say, there are so many variables around that. And of course, the war in Ukraine carries on and Russia's unpredictable. But Sean, thank you for your time today, as always. Pleasure. Lots of food for thought. And I'm sure that we'll have you back on the show very, very soon. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse, or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.